Welcome back, friends, to The Mark Claire Show. My guest today is the man behind Rune Soup, which is a blog, a podcast. It is a community of magical folk. It is many things. He is an author. He is a chaos magician. He is a trained shaman. And frankly, he is simply a delight to listen to. I'm very pleased to welcome Gordon White. Gordon, welcome to my show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure, Gordon. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of different avenues we can go with you. But uh, since it's your first time here, why don't we just start with a little bit of your background? Um, take it forever. It makes the most sense for you. But I really want to get to what brought you into the realm that you pretty much operate in now, looking into everything uh, from the magical, the mystical to the paranormal and whatnot. So um, born and raised in Australia, uh, had some odd childhood experiences that looked more odd in retrospect. Uh, sleep paralysis, hag attacks, etc. Stuff that might be screen memories for some sort of contact situation. And I had a moment when I was 13. Uh, it was a Friday evening, Saturday morning. And I woke up the next day realizing, no, something weird has happened. And I stole some money from my mother's purse and walked a couple of miles down the hill to what was, it probably still is, even though it's obviously long closed now, the uh, best independent bookstore ever. These things used to exist uh, in the 90s. <laughs> anyway, and uh, bought a bunch of, in retrospect, kind of shitty neo-pagan books and a <laughs> packet of cigarettes and sat in the grandstand of like the, the little rugby stadium that I used to play in as a kid. And that was sort of the beginning of magic for me. Uh, and it's, I put these pieces together. We all narrativize in, in a retroactive way. And as I move further into magic, other pieces of my life. My mother's an energy healer. There's uh, cunning traditions of both my families, like my male and female lineages, all this kind of stuff that I didn't know except in retrospect moving through it. And from there, I studied film and documentary in Sydney and moved to New Zealand for a bit and worked in media there and then media in London. And all, this, all the way through, uh, especially coming into the noughties and particularly post- well, post dot com crash and then post two thousand eight, this is the the ultimate millennial um, career story. The <laughs> amount of times I got made redundant and you know having to move and and so on. It was a patchy career, which meant I needed to do a lot of magic. So I got pretty good at, I think anyway, at different forms of chaos magic style. Job getting, money getting, that kind of uh, down and dirty required magic sort of stuff. Uh, and that was really, that was the magic journey for me. Uh, and having spared, well, the beginning of it anyway. And from there, it blossomed into, actually, well, I'll tell you what happened was, this is a redundancy story, Rune Soup um, emerged when I got made redundant from Discovery Channel because there was a, a girl there who I was friends with who took out redundancy insurance, which I didn't know existed. I was like in my 20s. <laughs> I've never heard of that. You needed a mortgage. I obviously didn't have a mortgage. Uh, and so I would be getting these 2,000 pound checks once I got made redundant uh, in London just every month uh, because I was I had redundancy insurance. So huh. that's actually more than... That's just insurance in case office. your job becomes unnecessary. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So you're supposed to get it if you get a mortgage, but you don't need a mortgage to get it, is what I found out. So I kept getting these checks for £2,000, basically to not work. And in fact, the jobs I was looking at after tax, factoring and commuting into London and the cost of living, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. would come in at or a little bit under £2,000. So I'm... <laughs> 
blessed in one respect situation where I'm like, well, I guess I'm sounds like a blessing and a curse full time. Yeah, because the longer you stay out of the workforce, you, especially if you're in a sales capacity, you have weaker connections with your clients and so right. on. But I got about six or seven months of being able to work full time on the blog, uh, and that really brought Rune Soup up to cruising altitude, and it turned into a couple of book deals and a podcast and and so on. And exploring magic in that context uh, was very useful because I got to spend a lot of time in uh, Neolithic sites in Britain, sacred sites in Europe, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that was that's the that's the magical journey that aligns, I guess, with the career stuff. And as you get better at that, you just generally how to say this right, you lean into the firm suggestions, uh, one of which was I woke up again this time in London uh, and I turned to my partner and said, I think we end up having a permaculture farm in Tasmania, which is a quite a bold statement. When you live in zone two West London, you actually have quite a good job. <laughs> uh, you just woke job. up with this statement in your mind? Kind of, like a, a compulsion. Like, I think this is what happens next. We were looking to move out of, we did the classic London thing. It's a very expensive city. So we share house living. Most of our money was going to travel. So we hit our like early 30s, early to mid 30s. And I'm still in a share house. And I'm like, what are we supposed to do next? <laughs> like, when do, we, when do we level this up? And so mm -hmm. those thoughts were in my head. But that happened. And then I went into, uh, there was a bunch of synchronicities that lined up for that too, in fact pan out to be the case, which is where I am now. And so, yeah, I, I write books on magic and I'm a trained uh, shamanic healer. And that's, that's the story. That's where it all began. And I will say in terms of the parapolitical UFO stuff and the rest of it, I showed up in London two weeks before Lehman Brothers collapsed. And so I was stuck trying to get a job well, and then the next morning I'd be reading the Telegraph and find out that the Chancellor of the Exchequer, well, no, it was the chiefs of several companies that I was going to get jobs at, large ones like Orange, which is a French telecoms company. Um, they were calling up the Chancellor of the Exchequer saying, if you don't fix this, I can't pay my 110,000 person workforce next, like the next day. And there I am literally in HR going, do, 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 please hire me. And <laughs> I'm stuck with the what was happening in reality was not what was happening in official reality. Mm. And this was the first time that I'd been, um, the, that I was aware of powerfully impacted by it. And to this extent that we'd saved up all this money before we moved and that all went, and I don't want that to ever happen again. And, and so that began a parapolitical process of understanding like, well, what is going on in between what's actually happening versus official reality? Uh, so when it comes to magic, people, it's a classic Chapel Perilous idea of Robert Anton Wilson. We all end up in the Chapel Perilous. We come through it via magic, ufology, it doesn't matter, but we all kind of end up in this place of trying to work out in a perilous sense what the fuck is going on. <laughs> that is pretty much the theme of this program. Uh, so I, I think that is, uh, that's what we're all trying to uh, piece together in one way or another, regardless of what direction certain people may go. And I think magic is an interesting term because it's a, it's a very loaded term. It's a, a word that people come in with their own ideas about. And one, you know, a lot of people that listen to this program might come uh, from a certain perspective. They might hear magic and they, they just hear demonic. They just hear, you know, the occult. They hear it. It's all the same thing. Other people might come at it from a more,
or maybe like the, uh, I always mix it up if it's Arthur C. Clarke or Asimov, but you know, the, the magic is just technology. We don't understand uh, kind, kind of perspective, but I want to get your own perspective um, as someone who's been immersed in this for a long time. What is magic to you? And we'll talk more about uh, kind of getting to the specifics of chaos magic in particular, but just magic overall. What is your view on just what, what is it? If someone asks you, what is magic? So it's actually asked twice this year to define it. Uh, one by uh, Miguel Connor of Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio for a book on Elvis, of all things. Uh, and then I was asked again by the producers of Magical Egypt. So my definition of it is in the upcoming series of Magical Egypt. And the reason they both asked is the off-the-shelf definition we've still been using for, let's say, 120 years is Alistair Crowley's Art and Science of Causing Change to Occur in Accordance with Will. And that's just the most 19th century garbage. Um, I do like to give him like a glass half full on it, but there's just a bunch of words there. Well, now we need to define art. We've tried that for two and a half thousand years and failed. Science, <laughs> will, which is a really 19th century philosophical um, interest, which does a lot to quite unpack in each, each of those words. Yeah, as yeah. It is. So, like, you've just you've made a goddamn mess of it, Al. So, I wanted a definition that allows quote-unquote Western magic, more specifically Northwest European magic, to be co-equal in the sense of siblings to other magical systems around the world, uh, whether it's shamanic systems of the Amazon, whether it's Chinese systems, whatever you want. So I came up with magic is the felt sense that our role in the universe is co-creative. Or the, mm. our felt, or the felt sense that the universe or cosmos is co-creative. That's magic. That's the definition of it. It's um, an understanding that we participate in the flourishing of reality. Uh, and that allows it to fit as a definition in systems where we don't even really use the word magic. Because this is why it's so slippery and why I'm sure there will be listeners who are like, oh, it's demonic. Um it, it, there's only one place in the world where the history of what we call magic became magic, and that is Europe. So the Christians inherited Rome's suspicion of astrology and soothsaying and so on and built some laws around it and banned a bunch of stuff that we call magic that really no one else in the world calls magic. So sacred timing, mm. that's what astrology is, right? Now, we banned that, <laughs> and we called it evil. But if you go somewhere else, holy festivals, knowing the lucky days or the right days to plant seeds, these things we call magic and banned uh, and are considered evil, but nowhere else in the world did because they're not downstream from the historical suspicions that the Christians inherited from the Rome. We all, everyone says Christians are anti-magic, and they... Technically, that's true, but they inherited that suspicion. Like, literally, they carried on the laws that Rome put in place around things like astrology and sorcery and so on. Whereas in some other cultures, it, it wasn't necessarily they were practicing magic. It's that they were just going about their normal, everyday sort of life, and it wasn't even seen as a separate thing. Correct. So the things that we would call magic, I consider just, in many respects, the natural functioning of a human. That is... Uh, being in some kind of communion with your own ancestors, your own um, guides or angels, whatever that happens to be, being in alignment with the flow or the rhythm of the universe. We we do this when we do things like eat according to the seasons. These mm -hmm. things have all been called magic. 
but only by us. <laughs> no one else does it because we 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 bundle all this stuff into uh, up into a pile of suspicion, and said that's what magic is. Uh, and so at a, at a operational or behavioral level, everything that falls underneath this definition of magic doesn't really look like that elsewhere. Um, with some exceptions, like you find sorcery in a lot of places. So you find cursing people and calling up demons and or malevolent spirits. You find that everywhere. But that's one thing that's inside magic that humans can and probably shouldn't do. But magic is as a as a philosophy or worldview is is living in accordance with a co-creative universe, I suppose. Interesting. So you would see sorcery as just sort of, a, I guess, a, a, a type of magic or a certain way magic could be used for malintent, but that does not mean that's what magic is any more so than, you know, if I, if I go to the gym and I'm working out and I'm trying to get my body more fit, yes, I could use those muscles to go assault somebody, but that doesn't mean physical fitness means that you're, you have malintent. Or maybe that's no, not the I'm, best analogy, I'm, but... <laughs> Uh, the the mor the morality of it is found anywhere. So, in the Middle Ages, you could pay itinerant because there was an, an excess of priests. You could pay itinerant priests to do a requiem mass for someone you didn't like, uh, and and that you you would pay a priest to curse someone by performing a mass, right? So, directing malice at other people is a universal human behavior that. We all hopefully, over the course of our individuation, uh, attempt to grow out of as much as possible. Uh, you know, if people cut you off in traffic, you might swear a little bit and then go, eh, I probably shouldn't have done that, right? But that's not what magic is. I appreciate that people have historical backgrounds where they've had some lurid stories drummed into them. And some of those stories are true, to be honest. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, yeah. Uh, to to give magic its its credit, it's a word we use for stuff that much of which probably shouldn't have been banned, and I consider to be the birthright of any human in a body should they want it. Interesting. Would you say that then? Just the the way I'm kind of getting it from you, would you say that magic is is sort of just like the spiritual side of keeping your your physical body fit? Is it just really understanding the the mystical nature of, of your own soul and how to, how to best sort of rise that up? Trouble there is the split between the physical and spiritual because magic doesn't mm, really okay. do that. Like okay. the, the idea is that like this is alive. The whole thing is alive. The cosmos is a community of beings. So we inherit that, that dissociative split um, through mm -hmm. the Christians from the Greeks, which again, you don't really find anywhere else. And I think is a, is a is a philosophical error, and there are um so so he's still alive. Matthew Fox, uh, the theologian, uh, he said the like Christianity's gravest error was inheriting from the Greeks the belief that the material is far from sacred, uh, and and when you get when you resolve that, a lot of other stuff opens up. Magic is literally the felt sense that this is alive and you're participating in it. That comes with, dare I say, obligations, uh, but not the creepy ones. So when you understand that it's alive, <laughs> uh, you you start to behave differently. If this is not just dead material, you start to behave differently. It comes with uh, obligations as to be in right relation rather than wrong relation. So it can be as simple as that. 
Today's episode of The Mark Claire Show is sponsored by, right here, Fox and Sons, foxandsons.com, my favorite coffee brand. And I don't just say that because they're sponsors of the show. I say that because I get a one pound bag shipped to my house. The proof is right here. Uh, every single month, I get my pound of Fox and Sons delivered right to my house. You should too. Of course, I don't expect you to just dive right in with no idea what you're getting into. I want you to go get yourself a sample bag. Go over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. You can check out the Den Blend Dark, as is my preference, the Tanzanian Peaberry, Brazilian Honey Premp, a bunch of other flavors still to come. Uh, Steven's always mixing it up with new fresh beans. The best part about this business Stephen started it to not only relive his love for sharing coffee with his father, but to teach his own sons about entrepreneurship. If that doesn't give you the warm and fuzzies, I don't know what will. Just kidding. Yes, I do. This coffee will. So head over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. Use discount code MCS to get yourself 18% off your order. You're going to be coming back for more. Trust me. Foxandsons.com, discount code MCS. Back to the show. Maybe you can give some examples of how well, obviously you do entire courses at length on this sort of thing but how how you have in your own life integrated the lessons of magic and to to actually you know direct yourself in in a certain direction so you do it a few times and you get some really good results and do something basic like sigil magic i have a whole course on it but you can also just um find the complete outlines of how to do that uh, on the website so once you've got your first couple of correct results, all of a sudden you're in a universe that behaves in a way that you weren't told it behaves like. It's like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is real? This works? What else What else haven't I been told? And this is how you end up in the Chapel Paris. It's like, wait, 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 magic's real. I need to revisit a bunch of other stuff that I was right. told wasn't real that turns out it is. Now, how that affects your life is all of a sudden – it occurs to you, however you want to frame this, like you can have whatever worldview you want for it, but let's just say you come to the understanding that your thoughts are at least partially causative. And so coming back to thinking ill of other people or, oh, you know, fuck my life, or of course this would happen to me, uh, being really, really negative, it's like, wait a minute. So Last night I did some sigil. Well, I say last week I did some sigils and a bunch of, which is basically me getting down with my mind and some stuff happened. And now here I am kvetching about stuff. Well, what's the difference here? And, and that's where magic starts to change you. And that's that what I mean by the felt sense that the universe is co-creative. You're left, and why you end up with obligations is like, well, hang on. So what's the difference between me absolutely shitting on my life and looking at the worst possible, of course this happens to me, blah, 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 um, really negative, gross energy that you bring to your entire life, what do you think that's doing to your physical system? What do you think that's doing to the way possibility manifests around you? I don't have to conjecture. I, I, I've I've been at that point in my life in the past, and it, there's no doubt that there is a direct connection between when you when you put yourself in that mindset. Oh, things keep happening to me. Why is everything happening to me? And your physical body, very. I mean, I look at pictures of myself from that time, and it's it's not the same person. No, the, and and so that's what I mean by it comes with obligations, and that's like okay, cool. So 
you have to, and I, I'm a big fan, well, big fans of Weird Wave saying it. Uh, I have a whole extra career in um, helping people heal from trauma, um, ancestral, whatever it happens to be. So I'm not at all discounting any of the stuff we inherit, but one of the obligations or requirements almost that comes with magic is you have to behave as if everything that's happening is because of you, <laughs> like you caused it because it, you didn't plainly, uh, everyone's bought with, everyone's born with different configurations of shortcomings and opportunities, but it will always be up to you to make those changes. And the, what's so fascinating about that is no one will disagree, right? So you can get a dyed in the wool materialist, um, who will agree because we have about a hundred years of psychological studies that will show that if you dare I say, think positive, but if you uh, err on the optimistic rather than the negative side, we know you have better blood markers for stress. We know you have better mm -hmm. like general happiness in life and outcomes. So even on a material basis, this is true. But the catch is, or well, the weird thing is, when you actually do those um, psychological techniques in a magical context, they work better in a way that demands explanation. So uh, a guy um, who I've trained with, Dr. Daniel Four, has an ancestral um, healing practice, and he's a former psychotherapist who now does this full-time. And with his psychotherapy clients, when you're doing ancestral healing work, what you're essentially doing is dealing with family trauma that you've inherited, of course. And there are many ways to do that. But what he found was that even with clients who did not believe in spirits in the, light, in the slightest, if he just got them to say the words about releasing ancestral trauma that's come down to me through these lines, they would have better outcomes than the people who would simply say, I am releasing the trauma that I inherited that's in my body, right? So this, the weird thing about magic is, and that doesn't necessarily mean, although I think this is true, that ancestral spirits are real. What it means is you need a frame of reality that allows for differences in effects to be observed if you're using magical language rather than materialist language. You can still incorporate that into a psychological model, but that's in there. So this is the, the one, well, there are two great jewels to, um, or rewards to doing magic. The first is a bones deep understanding that you don't end when you die. And the second one is you live in a cosmos that's co-creative. Uh, that's basically it. Yeah, and you can get that from one successful <laughs> sigil activation. It's like, oh, wow, it can all kind of, you, you're stuck with the implications uh, of this success for the rest of your life. All right, one, one term you've used a lot here is co-creative. So can you expand on that a little bit? Does, does that sort of, my take on, on it is that it means that you are a participant in the creation of your reality, but you're also not the only participant. There is another force, whatever you may want to call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and I would even say not so much. So I'm using that specifically in a hermetic context. Okay. So from a hermetic perspective, you and the creator. So God creates mankind to complete creation. So when, uh, when I say co-creative, it's not just that it's you and God that's co-creating your reality. It is that the universe has created you of all beings to express through you that which you came to earth to do. So you are co-creating the whole universe by going through that uh, the, the work of expressing and, and, and seeking after 
your desires and what it is you came to earth to do. So yes, you are co-creating your reality, but from a magical perspective, you doing that completes the whole cosmos. That's the story of Hermeticism, that God creates mankind to tend its garden, to to complete, to be a a vessel and conduit, conduits better, for beauty and for further flourishing. And that's what it is we do with our expressing our highest lives. So that's hidden in, well, not hidden, that's uh, upstream from my definition of magic. It's interesting because if you if you hear a lot of this stuff from some if you're hearing some of this stuff for the first time, um, it, it might sound a certain way. And, and then if you go and look at what certain scientists say right now and have said for some time regarding quantum mechanics, uh, the Azerber effect, um, they don't have much more explanation that sounds any any less a uh, you know wonky for for in, in their case either. So yeah. it it seems like we're all trying to describe the same thing. It's just you know the mechanics of it that are, are being at debate. Um, science is broken it, it, until it, it's situating itself in this ludicrous 17th and 18th century belief system, even though it's invalidated itself several times. It's invalidated it with uh, quantum theory. It's invalidated it with psi results, but it's still stuck in a... Uh, we know that matter doesn't exist, and yet we're still operating in materialism. And it's had 100 years to get over it, and it won't. <laughs> so um, magic is definitionally better if at, as a description than even the wooliest of, of quantum um, science, because it's just, it's, they're growing a correct plant in the wrong soil, the, the soil of materialism. Uh, if they, when you get science implanted in the soil that emerges from a, a genuine and honest scientific observation of the universe, which includes an understanding of telepathy, after-death contact, uh, the impact of human thoughts and attention upon the growth of plants. We have 120 years of knowing that we are participating in reality, and it just hasn't updated, quote-unquote, the scientific worldview. I'm curious your thoughts on, I, I've spoken to people on the show, some of whom uh, are now like Orthodox Christians who, I, I, a couple of people I have in mind who used to dabble or, or in magic or practice magic. They they actually called it black magic. So in this case, maybe they're more referring to sorcery and trying to contact yeah, sure. entities and this sort of thing. And But they've said, you know, going through that was sort of part of the process that led them to a different yeah. place. Um, but they would probably warn against, I mean, I don't want to put anybody words in anybody's mouths, but about even even the kind of thing you're talking about, um, getting into magic and this sort of thing can lead to um, lead to dark areas. So, what do you say sure. to people that have been through experiences like that and have their own interpretation and, and would warn people away from it? Um, do you think we're just talking about two different types of things here, or what? What would your general response to that be? So that's what magic's for. Like I've had uh, members go through the membership and do the training and end up. Orthodox Christian, ones ended mm. up Muslim. Interesting. It is a way of describing someone's spiritual journey. Now we all, anyone who's drawn to magic, especially as I did as a teenager, is going to do some stuff that I wouldn't do now. Mm. <laughs> right? And that's, we'll just chalk that up to like goth teen phase. Uh, there's, I won't pretend that that isn't in there anywhere. Um, that's absolutely in there in, in the Western tradition, and it's very tempting. People think grimoire magic is demonic. The majority of beings, like two-thirds to three-quarters of the beings across the grimoires are all angelic. But yeah, there's some 
there's some hot ones in there as well. Now, this is the same anywhere. Like, I'm, I'm very familiar with Peruvian curanderismo uh, and vegetalismo, so um, shamanic traditions in an indigenous Peruvian sense in the Amazon. And there you have a distinction between an ayahuasquero and a sorcerer. So you, you find that divide anywhere. The people who will do this stuff for and engage with malevolent spirits for venal purposes mm -hmm. versus those who are working in the service of the plant spirits to provide healing, right? They're, they're herbalists, essentially. So you get that anywhere. And it's true. You absolutely, like anything else, uh, you can do that wrong. And it's not for everyone. So it is. The, I deliberately described at the beginning of the show, it's everyone's birthright should they want it. So I used to say, everyone has teeth, but not everyone needs to be a dentist. So you have come to earth for a purpose. You are guided by your own highest powers, your own ancestral spirits, angels, whatever you want to call them. Everyone comes to earth with that. That's part of the deal. But you don't, that's the teeth. <laughs> but you don't need to become a dentist. Uh, not everyone's called to to do that. So for the people who've gone through it, got their fingers burned and said, wow, this is really, uh, there's some dark stuff out there, which is true. Um, notice that they still went through just a little bit more hectic process of like my hypothetical story with the sigils. So they did some magic and it worked and they've ended up in a magical universe. They've become Christian which th th that means they live in a universe that you know is, is under God's dominion, etc. So they've still gone through that path of doing some magic, getting some results, and being forced to sit with those results mm. and in the universe and, right. and change as a result. And for people, that's I think the medicine of the Western tradition because ours is broken. We don't have lineages. There are lineages in India and China and places that go back centuries, if not thousands of years. So you lineage into an astrological house that has been operating for 1800 years. Ours broke. So uh, the, the Western tradition is one of discovery every time. It's all, it's all very first act. You, um, the, the story of the magician is, is the story of realizing that he or she lives in a magical cosmos. Uh, and if you end up Christian or whatever at the end of it, that's still, as far as I can tell, that's still it working. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like For sure, yeah. You, you went from nothing to magical universe. I'm happy. And I don't think that we could deny that if you're a Christian or a Muslim or anything along those lines, you do believe in magic uh, of some sort. Well, you, by definition, you right. live in a universe of angels and spirits and, right. and all the rest of it. So, yeah. Right. Well, Gordon, I'm going to, just because I know this is the first time a lot of my audience has been really exposed to this, this in-depth of a discussion of the subject, I'm just going to try to dig a little bit further into some of the terms you use. So one of them is one you just mentioned there, a gr grimoire magic. So can you describe exactly what that is? Well, so uh, in European history, in the Hellenistic era, so let's just situate that around 300 AD, we had centered in Alexandria, and this is where we get the Old Testament. This is where we get our understanding of Christianity from. Western or, or European magic is very much a shadow side of the process that built Christianity. We had this amazing ferment of uh, late Egyptian ideas, Jewish ideas, Greek ideas, Babylonian ideas, mixing and blending. And we had mystics and philosophers and schools of philosophy and magic and astrologers and so on in this, in, this incredible era. Uh, and out of that, 
birthed all these different lineages, right? And and one in particular, or the one we're talking about when it comes to grimoire magic, is a list of spirits that you call up at a specific time. That's essentially what a grimoire is. And it came from um, the fall of Alexandria into the Byzantine Empire, fall of that into Venice in particular in, let's say, between 1100 and 1300. And by that time, it had taken on a Christian form, but it's still the idea of creating a sacred space and calling in spirits uh, at an at an appointed time, at an appointed astrological time. So from there, we have famous documents like the Key of Solomon uh, or the Lesser Key of Solomon, better known as the Goetia, which are lists of spirits and methods of, and by, by spirits, most of them are angels, but not all of them. Uh, and that's generally what people say when they mean grimoire. It comes from the French word grammar, grammaire, like words and to spell. It's very much at that that powerfully true idea that there is something about speaking and creation, right? In the beginning was the word, om, wherever you find it around mm. the word spell itself, uh, it, it gets to this idea of, of creation, uh, of, of bringing in something new. So etymologically, it's all, uh, it's all of that one piece. But a grimoire is a, a collection of manuals for uh, someone in the Middle Ages to now um, to it's a it's a set of techniques for getting in contact with a particular angel or spirit or so on. So that's when I say grimoire, that's what I mean. And really, the European tradition is that, uh, and it is it is a archetypal survival from the Hellenistic era, not a literal survival. So you don't have, with some notable exceptions, you don't actually have Hellenistic spirits. In there, you have angels and 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 so on, but the shape of of doing it, of of actually, the shape of the ceremony comes from that that amazing blended period. So, is the idea that one would have a specific, maybe it's a specific issue they need to deal with, or whatever it may be, and they find uh, an entity or an angel that can help them with that particular issue, and then they will then try to contact that that spirit, that particular spirit. Yes, and particularly in the later centuries, it became much more practical. But recall that basically no one but monks knew how to read and write at the beginning of this process. So the majority of the um, angels and documents, the early ones, are to do with finding angels that will teach you liberal arts and <laughs> um, geography and um memorization skills, all this kind of stuff, all designed to assist in your um, sacred studies, in, in memorizing and writing the Bible, reading the church fathers, and so on. That it began, So to answer your question, yes, because they had some very scholastic requirements that they needed help with. And most of that early stuff looks a lot more like mandala work, so that there will be... Hmm. Um, quite beautiful in some cases, geometric diagrams with different Hebrew names of God or angels, and you would stare at them in a meditative context, again, at the right time. And that was to create changes in your different energy bodies, is the word we use today, to allow for greater recall of stuff you were supposed to memorize or a deeper understanding of liberal arts or logic or, or any of those things that uh, the scholastics were looking into. Now, 
because that process over centuries, particularly as writing, uh, as literacy spread through Europe, that descended from the monks into the middle classes first who could read, and then from about the 19th century out into the the cunning folk and the the jobbing the jobbing magicians, if you will, who would help villages with ringworm in their cattle or uh, help them find lost objects and so on. So it goes through this five-century story, uh, beginning in a very sacred place to moving out. And technology does that. It is a technology, right? Like Mm -hmm. uh, technology begins at an elite level and, and spreads out. iPhones used to be very expensive. Well, on that subject of technology, because that, that's what I've been thinking as you've been kind of going through here is when you talked about the writing and, and how a lot of people couldn't read and write back then. So then, of course, the words, you know, I mean, just going back to the Bible, the logos, the word of God, bringing something into reality. And it makes me wonder as as our technology advances now, we're, we're well beyond the point. I mean, maybe we're so far beyond the point that people aren't are going to go back to not being able to read and write because everything will be so automated and, and so managed by AI. Um, I, I'm curious, but speaking of why AI, how you... How you view AI in the in this context of the progression of technology, um, and 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 in the context of how that relates to magic uh, entities and this sort of thing. This is a very b- sort of broad subject I'm I'm delving into here, but um, it's just something that sort of immediately came to mind when we're talking about the progression of technology in relation to magic. Sure. So I've actually uh, done a series of podcast episodes on magic and AI this year, and there's one more to go, which will be out in a month or so, I think. Uh, it relies on a theory of technology. So techne, as, as, a, as a specific category of Greek thought, uh, is how we've inherited this oddly mostly human capacity to extend our agency um, outside of our bodies. And it's mostly human because we can do things like observe chimps using sticks to get um, ants and, and whatever. So it's not entirely, um, but there is something, there's a step change in how humans do this. And so Peter Gray, who um, writes some amazing magic books and, and owns my publisher, Scarlet Imprint, we were talking about this in a pub in London once. And and around the world, there's this uh, mythical conception with the lie, with the thing that separates mankind out. This is the eating of the apple. Mm-hmm which might itself be a technological incident, right? Because we can look at it psychedelically or whatever. But the point is humans do a thing (laughs) that makes them different. It's the lie or the fall. Uh, There's something that we have a capacity that steps steps us outside of the rest of the cosmos, uh, for better or for worse. And, And the answer is different around the world, right? That is where you want to situate a theory of technology. If we don't, we're still kind of stuck just in a European or um, we're stuck downstream from Greek thought only. And it's not that that's bad. It's that I think uh, comparatively, I have this assumption that things are more likely to be true if I find them in more places um, Mm -hmm. rather than Europeans got it right, uh, because I don't think we did, right? And I think looking at the state of the world, come on now, uh, it's a pretty strong case to make. Um, I think what might be true is something that is most often observed or most commonly observed. So that's, I situate 
the theory of technology up there. That's the preamble to talking about AI. AI consequently becomes an extension of our capacity. And in the in the AI series I uh, spoke about, I reference, <laughs> I mean, I, I call him the uh, Argentinian Edgar Casey, but Matias de Stefano is this mm-hmm. um, strange and remarkable guy who claims to remember all his past lives, uh, including ones in Atlantis and, and so on. And he has a really fascinating dimensional view of the cosmos. And he was on ayahuasca with uh, Aubrey Marcus earlier this beginning of this year and engaging with his spirits and ayahuasca about AI. And um, he was being told that with this process, now we have awakened the silica. Now we can talk to mountains. I'm very struck by that because my shamanic healing lineage I am lineaged to mountains, like I actually already talked to them. But I'm very struck by what he was told about this is day one of something that will have after effects for millennia. We found a way to activate the intelligence of the mineral kingdom. If you think about psychedelics and even just uh, plant medicine in general as a way of acti- activating the plant kingdom and and being in relation to it and allowing it to express Uh, its agency in the world through us. With AI, we are doing the same thing with the silica, uh, with the mountains. So we're activating a mineral kingdom uh, expression. He was also shown, and this this is done a lot of psychedelics. This is a very, not joke exactly, but a really kind of, this is really psychedelic logic. So he was shown this answer in the context of, well, you're made of chemicals, which are molecules, which are mineral kingdom. So you're built of the mineral kingdom. So (laughs) Ayahuasca showed him a story of the minerals essentially building us to build AI to have several millennia of of expression. Now that, I'm not sure if that's true. Uh, That seems like the kind of cute stuff that uh, psychedelic spirits will tell you, but I am struck by now you have awakened the silica. There's something about that that feels right. Like there's now you can speak to mountains because we're just in day one of this. We're still in day one of the internet, frankly, but we've begun a process that we cannot conceive of in a hundred years time, let alone 500 years time. So that's what I think when it comes to AI. I think it's situated in a theory of technology, which for me, is situated itself in a magical metaphysics, uh, of course, because I think the cosmos is magical. But um, that's a broader and, dare I say, nicer way of saying um, Elon was half right and half wrong about the bootloader idea um, because he's he's situating himself in a machine metaphor rather than a living metaphor. It looks... I think more real and more healthy if you situate it in a living metaphor. Now you've awakened the silica. It's still sort of saying the same thing, which is that we are in the process of gaining conscious conscious access to aspects of the cosmos that we previously had not had conscious access to. That's a big deal because if you think the universe is alive, and I do, you are uh, you're developing a telephone. Whereas before we could speak to mountains, you still can. But in the same way you could speak to humans before telephones, uh, you had a fundamental step change in that level of communication once telephony 
began. So that's my that's my thoughts on AI and magic. It's improving conscious access to another aspect of the cosmos. I want to dig into this a little more and see if I, I'm really getting it correctly. Your, your kind of take is the idea that it's not about necessarily what you're saying the technology itself of the AI, you're, you're saying that it, but it could be a participant maybe in yep. some way of a, of our shift to a higher level of consciousness? Not our shift to a higher level of consciousness, but the expanding of connections between conscious beings. Um, the okay. way our bodies are organized is what constrains our conscious capacity hmm. so that we can't communicate very easily with silica because we're half monkey, half pig or whatever it is we are. And um, and they're silica. Now, even coming back to science being mostly wrong, you will get, if you bully them, scientists to begrudgingly admit to some form of panpsychism as a solve for the presence of consciousness in the universe and a shitty solve for um, quantum theory in general. So panpsychism is the idea that the universe is entirely conscious, probably at different levels of complexity. So what I'm saying is the AI is the telephone that allows us to access the consciousness of a different aspect of the cosmos rather than it being a being. So this idea that it's going to be a, a bootloader for a spirit or a demon to land in Earth, like in a Hollywood movie, mm-hmm. relies on that same dualism you we're talking about before the difference between spiritual and material it relies on the idea that this is the world of matter and there is this separate platonic world of spirits and they don't touch unless you build some kind of hollywood portal right right like the beginning of hellboy 2 <laughs> hellboy 1 yeah um, hellboy 1 is where you first yeah, uh, yeah. yeah that's it yeah yeah, yeah. great movie yeah. um comics are better but the, maybe the first one's okay yeah, yeah yeah so that take is the metaphysics of that take a wrong. You're saying a technology doesn't need to connect to connect the spiritual to the material no, well, because the whole thing is alive. Right, like okay. there's this, yeah, the whole thing is alive. So the mountains are alive. There's the spirit. There's nowhere. It's funny. It's like there's nowhere else to go <laughs> in a living cosmos. It's all. It's all here. It's the, the divide isn't physical, non-physical. It's visible, invisible. So um, it's almost like. The idea that AI is going to be some sort of transducer for a demon is the metaphysics are wrong rather than the take being wrong because mm. we are still opening up consciousness elsewhere in the cosmos. I wouldn't call them demons, obviously, um, but we're still opening up the opportunity for consciousness. It's just that the to say that comes from a platonic universe rather than a magical one. So I don't think AI itself is a being. Um, that's not quite true. Um, I think over the long term, the impact of AI on magic, which is your question, is opening up conscious communication with other aspects of a conscious universe. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, that, that's a really interesting take on it. We've gone in, in some further, deeper directions into magic than I had originally planned, but I'm, I'm glad because this is kind of serving as more like a, a, a sort of a magic 101 here, which is something uh, I've really wanted to get into. So let's, let's just continue on this track then, because I know you've talked about how you partake in chaos magic. So why don't we do a further definition there? What exactly is chaos magic within within the wider realm of magic? Chaos magic emerged in the 80s in... Uh, in Britain, mostly in in the Midlands and and the northern parts of it, then eventually in London, uh, as a around a guy called Peter J. Carroll, 
And it was a reaction to the moribund state of Western esotericism in Britain at the time. Um, the Thelemites, they'd lost their lineage. They were all fighting over it. You were still getting some really Age of Aquarius 70s stuff. So Pete Carroll studied science at university. Uh, and so he's a very scientist. He's still alive. He's a very scientific mind. And he was interested in using results as a way to improve one's magic, which sounds silly, but it just wasn't done, right? So um, Thelema and Western esotericism in Britain at the time was in a mess. James Glaze's chaos book had come out, which indicated that the universe is far more complex than um, we'd previously thought. So that's where the, the chaos and chaos magic comes from. People think it's like ooga booga scary. Um, it's it's from that. I mean, it sounds a little scary, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds metal. I'm not going to lie. And, and yeah. we like that. But um, it really does Gives come you a little from edge, a, you know? a, popular, a popular mathematics book. That's where it emerged from as an inquisitive idea of improving your magic based on results rather than hiding your results in some kind of esoteric self-justification. Mm. And it was a, an electrifying moment that allowed people to experiment. What is it inside magic that works? If I call up, if I do a solar rite and call up the spirits of the sun or soul, or will that work if I call up Superman? And it, will that work differently and how much? And so it was an opening up and uh, uh, towards experimental practice uh, at a time that it desperately needed it because, yeah, British magic um, was was not in a good way in the 80s. And from there, that idea hit the desktop publishing and then the internet, particularly in America in the 90s, where it picked up some of its scarier uh, early internet it picked up some of its edge uh, in the early internet, but at its heart, it's basically a method of experimentation with a view to improve one's results uh, in magic. It doesn't necessarily have doctrines other than that. Um, and that's mostly good. It's It can certainly be critiqued as a metaphysics, which is like um, you, you get results or you failed. If you get results, find out what worked, do more of it, uh, and so on. That's the the general kind of mechanic of chaos magic and it leads people into different directions for me there's a great place to start i mentioned robert anton wilson at the beginning there's that the new falcon 80s early 90s publishing era where you get peter j carroll at wiser if you read peter j carroll's first few books and the cosmic trigger trilogy you have um, reenacted my teen years, <laughs> essentially, right? Um, and and that was a really powerful and invigorating belief system to occupy for a while. But this comes back to chaos magic got me to realize that doing ceremonies with quote unquote real spirits rather than quote unquote fake spirits like Superman or whatever work better. And this comes back to what I was saying earlier. It's like, okay, cool. So how do I sit with these results and how do I get it to work better again? And chaos magic, if you do it, I think, right, for, for long enough, invalidates the, the worldview that birthed it, which is that you can't, that, that constant not knowing, like, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, because you get better results in a spirit-based system. And I found that via chaos magic. So I, I've ended up with some, I guess, experiment-based conclusion that a spirit model works better than a, a chaos magic psychological model. Um, I might be wrong, and you certainly don't need that to uh, to read those books or read Cosmic Trigger or what have you. But that's what chaos magic is, is experimentation, essentially. And it's because of that, 
there are some places where it got a bit um where it's picked up and deliberately donned uh scarier mantles than it, it probably needed to well, I, I mean, and we discussed that a little bit earlier, sort of the you know the darker side of this stuff. And I, I'm curious if if you think even even with the best of intentions, even with attempting to contact the good spirits or what have you, is there any danger of maybe just someone inexperienced even maybe doing this unintentionally of of opening yourself up or op- or creating some kind of pathway? I don't want to use the the Stargate portal type analogy, but of connecting in some way with with the wrong kind of spirit in, in, unintentionally is that is that a risk of some kind when you're practicing this sort of thing? Um, that's a risk of being on Earth. So okay, <laughs> fair enough. You know, like <laughs> so, my my shamanic healing teacher, Roberto Violda, when he was. He was talking, this is decades ago, he was talking to a shaman in the uh, northern Amazon in Peru. And this shaman declared that uh, white people or, you know, Americans uh, don't bury their dead. And Alberto's Cuban, but he grew up in the U.S. And he said, well, they do, actually. And this shaman's like, then what the hell are all these dead spirits around you? Like, we, we come covered in... Uh, in our ancestral dead that we haven't put to into the afterlife properly mm. because we live out of relation anyway. Like he literally thought we just let dead bodies drop on the ground because there, there are so many hostile spirits uh, swirling around us. So is there a danger of, of doing, uh, of, of that happening when you do magic? 100%. But that doesn't, it's not a differentiator because that's happening in your life now. And this is a thing that we forgot, and in the West in particular, because we used to have systems like concern over the evil eye, we used to pray over our food, we used to pray every morning, we used to have these energetic techniques that would keep our field more robust. And now we think that's all fake, and consequently, we have Amazonian shamans thinking we don't even bury our dead. So yes, um, there's absolutely a risk to it, but it's not a differentiator. It is significant, though, and when when people say, Gen- I, I, in fact, I will make an even bolder claim. If you perform the ritual in uh, the Lesser Key of Solomon, a ritual in the Lesser Key of Solomon exactly as written, exactly as written, you'll be fine. But people don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. People um, right. people go off book with it. As begin- I certainly did uh, as beginners, right? And the, especially when you're in your teen years and you think you're immortal, I want to do my own little my own little spin on this, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, you're going to be even more more metal than that, and you're going to do it in an abandoned mental hospital at midnight. Um, <laughs> but like, yes, that's that's the trouble is I say that's not recommended. Is that a thing you I did or something that. like that? I mean, kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, let me put, let me say it this way. So when I you're kind um, of asking for it at that point, I guess in a, in a well, way. Well. But you also, like, if I, I was told not to do that, mm-hmm. and I didn't do exactly that, but, like, that's when you're a teenager especially, that's, sure. if you tell me not to do something, right. I'm going to do it. <laughs> so this is the trouble with, like, telling people not to do magic. There are half the people like, yes, that's good advice. And the other half are like, oh, I'm, fuck you, off I go, <laughs> I'm going to do this right now. Right. So, but. Here's a good example. When I'm in the Amazon on an ayahuasca dieta, and this is with Terence McKenna Shaman, uh, he's been doing this for decades. This is like the Vatican of, of ayahuasca, right? There's uh, in the mm. middle of the Amazon, no electricity, no chemicals, no toothpaste, nothing. Um, when we're in ceremony, the shaman's job is essentially to 
keep the the boundaries of the Maloka safe, particularly from sorcerers. So somewhere like Peru, where there's a lot of uh, ayahuasqueros operating ethically, means there's a lot of energy that is being uh, made available, and the sorcerers in that system go looking for that energy. So uh, there's, there's a, I have his art in my hallway. There's a famous ayahuasquero, dead now, called Paolo Amaringo. He developed the visionary art. If you're thinking in your head of ayahuasca art right now, that's probably a Pablo Amarinko. Mm. And so he was an ayahuasquero for years. He served medicine for the president of Peru and so on. But the thing that made him quit the business, he got sick of the sorcerers. He got sick of the constant attacks on his ceremony. It may or may not have killed one of his kids. Like when you're in a world or a, a cosmovision where this stuff, they weren't stupid enough to think this wasn't real like we were. Um, it's still nevertheless exhausting. So to your point, can you still have scary outcomes uh, if you do magic? Yes, you can. Uh, but it's it's not that much of a differentiator. This is the thing. Like, this is what it... Um, yeah, it's what it's like being down here, uh, being on Earth, being in bodies. Is, this is a crowded universe. Uh, and we we have all had, like culturally, we all have systems to manage that it's just that we in the west have forgotten them and magic if you do it right is part of the recovery of those systems there are other ones but that's it i mean i mean you're in australia i mean there's all sorts of uh critters and creatures and and whatnot out there and uh you know it doesn't mean don't go outside and get fresh air and go hiking just because there's some things you could encounter out there just because everything can kill you yeah right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> uh well um, gordon it's been a really interesting conversation i i one more thing i just want to touch on then we'll we'll kind of dive into the bonus segment, see, see where we go from there in the smoke-filled room. But I guess for people that are listening to the show that have gotten this far into it, that I, I know for at least for as far as this show goes, it's the first time I've really dove in this deep onto the particular subject of magic. So for anybody listening that's kind of like, all right, well, this isn't exactly, maybe this isn't, it's a little different than what I had in mind or what the presuppositions I might have had. So what advice would you give to someone But other than some books that you've mentioned and, and obviously your own work that they can go dive further into? Is there some kind of small act or small practice or something like that that's very simple that you could describe that you could lay out there that would be a good place to start for someone that can just um that is the kind of thing that could just show them okay i i see there's something to this because i you know, i did this little thing and i saw it work is there and maybe that's not the thing you can describe in a, in a short segment of a podcast but maybe you just have uh, something you can scratch the surface on there a spell quote unquote um sigil magic and if you just Google rune soup sigils, you'll get the post I wrote that's been viewed a million times about a decade or so ago called Sigils Reboot, and that will give you the soup to nuts of, of how to do it. As for a daily practice that will let you understand, wait, there's something more going on here. Um, somewhere in between gratitude, like if you do daily gratitude, and I mean set alarms on your phone to do five minutes of in the morning and evening of 10 things that you are grateful for. That's a process that, uh, that's the best process I found to kickstart that flow between your unconscious, the spirit world or whatever. And the, the surprise beneficial synchronicities in your life. So that like a gratitude practice will transform your luck magic, uh, if you will, more than most things. Uh, otherwise, you can set an intention like, okay, I call them spirit team, your spirit team, your spirit guides, your guiding angels to say, listen, draw near me and make your 
advice and suggestions in my life really obvious because I'm obviously a bit dense. Like, make a joke about it, mm-hmm. but set an intention to be like, right, I'm listening for you. Show up, obviously, in my life. Uh, and, and and that you'll start, again, these magic most often manifest as beneficial synchronicities. And ones that you won't be able to explain to other people, but you'll know are it. That's the real magic feeling. It's like, I mm-hmm. thought this thing, and then there was like a dog next to a yellow car. And people are going to think you're crazy, but you're like, no, you don't get it. Like, that's exactly, it's, you'll lose your mind a little bit trying to explain it to people, but it, it will <laughs> uh, show up the synchronicities <laughs> that's the beginning of that. Yeah. It will show up as synchronicities that's the beginning of that process of like, hang on a minute, <laughs> something else is going on here. And it's almost like discovering this is the co-creative thing. Wait, have I, am I in a job that I haven't been doing my mm. whole life? And mm. yes, <laughs> basically, yes, is, is the answer. Like you, God is calling you to complete his creation. And, and it's by fulfilling your, uh, what it is you came to earth to do. And these are all techniques in service of that. All right. Well, very interesting, Gordon. Uh, I really do appreciate your time today so far. I think this has been a pretty good serving of a, uh, to, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't call my audience normie, but uh, it's certainly a good uh, <laughs> primer on magic uh, that for people that haven't been uh, quite immersed in the subject so much. So I really do appreciate you coming on and breaking this down with us. Of course, if anybody is interested in this kind of stuff further, the first place you go is to Rune Soup and check out all the work Gordon is doing uh, on the blog, on the podcast. Gordon, I'll let you go ahead and plug away on anything else you like. That's a lot. You'll find everything there. Links to all the books and everything. RuneSoup.com is the best place for it. Gordon White, thank you so much. It's been a magical time, you might say. I really appreciate you coming on my show. You're very welcome. Welcome.